Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Alan Parry podcast where I interview fascinating people and then let you listen in. Now in this episode I talk to the lovely Tom Anderson who is barman and beer brewer for Liverpool's iconic public house, the Baltic Fleet. He'll be showing us inside the world of the microbrewers and explaining why real ale is better than corporate beer. Now even if beer isn't your thing, listen in anyhow because this is as much about rebellion, creativity and craftsmanship as it is about ale. So without further ado, listen in to the beer artist and craftsman that is Tom Anderson. Hello Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm thinking this one's going to be uh, quite an interesting one because you're a uh, beer brewer and, and you're also a beer aficionado and I'm pretty much teetotal. Um, so this should be an interesting conversation, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, it should be good. Good to talk about the intricacies of it and uh, yeah, the history of it. Yeah, it should be good. Well, you're you're one of those rare rare barmen as well, Tom, who will make me a cup of tea without any without any um, without any bother at all. You're very happy to make me a cup of tea when I come into your pub. So I'm I'm, I'm always very grateful for you for for that. Absolutely, there should be no qualms about bartenders making you a cup of tea. It's, uh... Sometimes, is you know, there's a, there's there's often I notice when I, I get a cup of tea in a pub, the, there's a lot of uh, tutting and eye rolling, but certainly not with you. But you work in the you work in quite an iconic place, don't you? Because you're at the Baltic Fleet, which is a, a, a an old historic pub in Liverpool. It's very very well known. Yeah, I work down at the Baltic Fleet, um, so I brew there twice a week, and then I work up on the bar three days a week. So split shifts. Uh, yeah, it's a great little pub. Um, I actually brew underneath the pub itself, and. Um, in the cellars, which are connected to old smugglers' tunnels, which we should probably talk about later on as well. Oh yeah, we, well let's tell you what. Let's talk about them now because smugglers' tunnels sounds very exciting, and we, we'll we'll get into the beer stuff. So tell me about those. So it's um, so the pub was built in eighteen forty seven, um, and there's two tunnels, um, both of them leading to the docks. Um, the main theory is is that they were used for rum running. So um, the pub was originally set up into two different pubs. One was called Turner's Vault, and the other one was called the Baltic Fleet. And the, the theory is is that we used to get free alcohol, uh, free of tax, I should say. Yeah. And they used to store them in the tunnels. And so if any fat men came, yeah. they used to just basically pass on the blame to the other pub next door. <laughs> okay. And got around it that way. Yeah. Uh, that's the main theory as to why they're there. Okay, and and so that's kind of where where you're brewing now, basically. Um, I don't brew in the tunnels. I um, I store I store my beer in the tunnels now. So basically, I'm using them for the, for the reason they were intended. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you actually get into um, beer? Because I was thinking about this the other day, and you know, whenever I dig into what my passions are, or whenever I've coached anyone else in terms of trying to rediscover what their passions are. One of the things I often do is is take them back into childhood of the things that they loved doing as a kid that, you know, just because they wanted to, not because they had to, and that they've kind of lost touch with. And I was thinking of, of people like yourself who are beer aficionados. How do you get into that? Because it's it's something that by necessity you get into in adulthood, isn't it? It's really funny that you say taking you back to childhood because... 
I was a bit of a bookish kid when I was when I well I was very bookish and yeah. loads of books. Um, one of my favorite books was uh, this book that my nan and granddad had, which is uh, a book of cocktails that they picked <laughs> up on a they picked up on a cruise. And for some reason, I was fascinated by the different pictures of all these different drinks. I remember reading through them when I was about seven, eight years old. I had no idea what rum was. Wow! But <laughs> but for some reason, I was captivated by the idea that you can make so many different combinations of things with basically the same ingredients. Yeah. So it's it's basically like Lego. That's what that's why it intrigued me. I love Lego as well. When I was a kid, it's the idea of being able to build something that you want out of the smallest and almost inconsequential ingredients. That's kind of what grasped me. So this is kind of a liquid Lego for you. So even as a, even as a child, because I, I really didn't expect you to, to come back into childhood. And when you started going there, I was imagining people were, were passing your bottles of stout in your playpen. But, <laughs> but that's <laughs> no, incredible, isn't it, that there is actually a childhood link to something which is an adult pursuit, basically, like alcohol. But for you, it's a, a liquid Lego. It's almost like you're a chef, really, but with, with alcohol. That's right, yeah. I was, um, well, my bread and butter before brewing was cocktails and wine as well. Oh, so I see. I, I fell into cocktails pretty much straight away. Um, I've, I've had other occupations as well, but my main passion was bartending. And I found out that I wanted to be a cocktail bartender. So I was that for, well, I've been a cocktail bartender for many many years like nine years and were you always aware of this link to the, to that book yeah yeah actually yeah, i was yeah and that's what <laughs> kind of um always the interest has stayed the same yeah so in terms of the people that you that you serve those people because I, I know you're a, a big fan of 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 beer in in the sense of you know um like many people are with wine for instance so you're kind of a connoisseur, aren't you, in terms of beer? People, people like you who are also beer connoisseurs, who are now your your kind of customers, the people that you're actually brewing for. What is it about that group of people that they have in common? What are they getting out of craft beers um, in particular? <clears throat> They're getting out of craft beers, I'd say, something out of the norm. I, the the whole launch and rise of craft beer that's kind of happening at the moment and has been for a while, I think it's to get people out of the norm. That people are tired of having the same run-down, watered-down, nonsensey beer that you can find anywhere. It's basically a point of difference. It's, yeah. uh, it's like watching EastEnders every night. You know, It's all very well and good, but pretty soon you're going to get sick of Pat Butcher. <laughs> Heaven forfend the thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that's mainly, I think that's the reason. That was the big Kickstarter for people to be interested in craft beers and what you can actually do with those pieces of Lego. There's got to be something out there other than Foster's or something other than Lager. Or, and basically, I think they got into the history of beers and looking back at old recipes, trying to reinvigorate those old IPAs and stouts and porters that actually have a history so it sounds like there's a few things going on there's kind of like um it allows people to have a a bit of a social status as as an expert someone who's standing apart from the crowd it allows people to kind of react against the big corporates and also it allows people to to really delve into some some of our social heritage i suppose yeah that's very right yeah that's exactly how i would describe it yeah absolutely 
So is is there any is there any kind of because I'm thinking of a of a parallel in terms of food, and of course there's been like the organic food movement, and there's been uh, a movement which is kind of ecological, really, which is talking about you know sourcing local produce. Is there that kind of um, drive towards craft beer as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. All the craft beer aficionados will definitely go for the most local or most well known, and there is also. Um, an organic backbone to it as well. There's a lot of call for people to move away from a thing called finings, which yes. are which which are basically um, the finings. fish bladders, aren't they? Basically, yeah, it's the swim bladder of a sturgeon. Right. Now, if that doesn't put you off it, I don't know <laughs> what will. <clears throat> uh, eyes and glass. Or, well, uh, I, I read about yeah. this actually, Tom, because as you know, I'm 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 a vegetarian, bordering on vegan, but not quite vegan, um, and. I was reading about these vegan beers, but they're cloudy because that's essentially what Finings does, doesn't it? It takes the cloud out. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more involved than that. It's basically it's taking out the proteins that are still that are still there in the beer that come from the malt itself. Oh, okay. Um, basically, it, it it also helps to drop out yeast. Uh, basically, it drops out what looks not very nice. But in actuality, that's part of the building blocks that are in the beer. That yeah. it gives it so much personality. So if you take the protein out, then you're not getting as full from the beer. I'm guessing you're not getting as much nutrients from the beer. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. there's that old granny thing, isn't there, where they they say you know you, they give you certain types of beer if you're not well. Like some people say, I have some Guinness, and some people say, I have some Stout or whatever. Is that kind of where that the roots of that are? I kind of, I guess, but um. Uh, the roots of the roots of finings and Isinglass come from the bad days of beer in the seventies, and kind of where Camera was built off the backbone of. Yeah, that's the campaign so, for real ale, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So finings kind of came off. They were never really a traditional ingredient. It's kind of a not recent development. So in the seventies, a lot of mass producing happened, and um, privatization of companies basically make as much beer as you can for as cheaply as possible resulted in not very good beers and things going wrong and one of those was cloudy beers or an infected beer a cloudy beer can be a sign of an infected beer which I could see. be like a, a rotten egg smell which is not very good yeah so a lot of the time if people will see a cloudy beer they'll automatically think no that's going to make me feel terrible so this is a bit it's a little bit similar, it sounds like, the way that, um, you know, a, a, a vegetable that's not a perfect shape no longer reaches a supermarket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. So, in terms of, um, in, like, you were talking about the, um, did you want to say more on findings before I move on, by the way, Tom? Um, I'd say that it's, um, it's a bit of a point of contention because I do some home brewing as well. Um, so, I've done a few different home brews and... I've tried the same recipe, exactly the same, with vinings and without vinings. And there's been the only major difference is is that they the taste is quite different, considerably different. The one with vinings is completely one dimensional and the hop character is almost completely gone. Right. And with the unfined one, it just looks a little bit more cloudy. But other than that, it's pretty much yeah, the same. So the one you'd rather drink would be the one which is the cloudy one, basically. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how did you actually get into brewing itself? So you were in, you were in cocktails and you, you, your passion was bartending. What happened that actually led you to this opportunity where you became the, the chef, if you like? You became the person who was putting your logo, Lego pieces together personally? I kind of, well, I was a, a cocktail bartender for so long. And there was, I, w- I was living in New Zealand, as, as you know, but um, I lived in New Zealand for six and a half, seven years with my partner, Jess. And um, was a cocktail bartender for lots of different bars, uh, but one in particular. Um, I kind of got tired of the pretentiousness of it, to be perfectly honest. Okay. There was a lot of, um, there was a <laughs> lot of posing on the scene and... A lot of people that were getting through the cracks who were just kind of too close and friendly to just trying to inch forward and get famous for the for the sake of being famous. Wow, I'm amazed by this. So, so there's a real kind of competitiveness and cutthroatness in in the in the cocktail world. Yeah, I mean the absolutely. pretentiousness doesn't surprise me, but I didn't think that there would be <laughs> kind of such careerism. Oh yeah, absolutely. If anybody can can get their name out. <laughs> to make them sound as if they're better than everybody else. They absolutely will. Right, that's amazing. So I kind of got alienated by that. Um, cocktails have been my passion for so long. And I kind of tried to climb up that ladder. But it never really happened because I'm quite a, I'm quite reclusive in a way. I, I find it quite hard to socialise at times, but that's that's a different story. So, but, um, so really, to, it's like many things, isn't it? I find this a little bit in, in music, partly actually, I think, because I don't drink. So whereas everyone, after a gig, will all pile into a bar and have a drink together and make networks, I, I often tend to slope off because that's not really my world and, and perhaps yeah. not quite as gregarious as, as all of those and and that's that's something that you're kind of it sounds like that's what you're sort of saying as well that that that's, inability to network is was something that blocked your career. That's exactly what I did. Like I used to find that after cocktail competitions, there used to be like a whole kind of Saturnalian debauchery going on during <laughs> and afterwards of just people getting completely drunk. And I I respect alcohol. I mean, I I do drink alcohol. Yeah. Because um, it's one of those things that comes with the trade. I guess you have to drink it if you want to make it. But um, I enjoy it for what it is, and I I never disrespect it. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the line for me. I'll, I will never disrespect it. But um, basically, going back to the point, I I became alienated with the whole scene and was trying to find different areas. And then I fell into working on a vineyard for a little while um, doing vineyard tours and then I discovered brewing which was at a place called Galbraith's so what happened when you discovered brewing what was <coughs> take me through the steps of that so I I kind of I quit my job at the cocktail bar in the place and basically just found another random job for four months which was basic bartending and then I thought to myself, well, I'm just stepping backwards. I don't really... I've done this for 10 years. I can do this in my sleep, basically. So I wanted to also, as well as, you know, carry on in a job I knew very well, kind of grow myself and challenge myself in something that was technical, like as technical as cocktails, getting those Lego building blocks, but 
something that didn't have the pretentiousness to it. Right, and so you wanted a down-to-earth version of what you'd been doing. Exactly, yeah, and I definitely found that with brewing. So what's the brewing world like then, if you can give give me a little sort of um, peek inside of that world? So I've had a little peek inside the cocktail world, which sounds a bit backstabby and, <laughs> and pretentious. It, it, can, and... it can be. I've met some absolutely lovely people in that world and people yeah. who can... Um, but it is very much... Yeah, it, it can definitely have that backstabbiness to it. So and what's, I, what's I, this world like, the, the brewing world? The brewing world is extremely inclusive. I I came into it knowing absolutely nothing. Like, I had no idea how to make beer from the ground up. And I, I started my job in Galbraith, and within two weeks they were asking me whether I wanted to come and do a brew day with them. Wow. Knowing nothing. So they were basically saying, oh, you know nothing, you want to know more. Okay, come and, come and join in. Whereas... I feel as if you went into that into the cocktail world not knowing anything, you'd just get laughed at. Yeah, and it it, it maybe sounds as well that as though because people are trying to make a name for themselves, people might be a little bit more reluctant to share their secrets. While maybe it sounds from the outside looking in like the beer world is like a a real burning passion, and when people have a passion, they they want to share it. Yeah, that's right. That's always the way I felt about it as well. I always used to be as inclusive as possible with how I make cocktails and how I used to build drinks. Um, and I, I found that same kind of passion and inclusiveness in brewing. Basically, they're just saying, I'll tell you everything you want to know. They're very inclusive. They'll answer any kind of questions. And they're very supportive. They'll give you books to read. They'll tell you how the machinery works, the process of it all works. It's, it's, it's great. It's really good. So what's the learning curve involved? So I'm thinking of you now, you're in Galbraiths, you've got this background in, in cocktail, but this is different, and you know nothing is the way you describe it. And so in terms of the learning curve involved, how quickly um, would it take for somebody like you to go from knowing nothing to actually being able to, to brew your own beer? I, the learning curve is very steep. Very, very steep. Well, for me, knowing nothing other than like a background in cocktails, as you said, it was. It took a lot of effort to kind of get my head around a lot of different things. It's mainly the technical side points of it. There's a lot of things that go on. I, that's kind of another frustration of mine is I don't know if people understand what actually goes into making beer. It's a very involved very yeah. scientific and technical process that's well seeing as you got that frustration and seeing as when you say that i'm thinking no i don't really have any idea can you can you take us through it from a like you know and and, and obviously you, you're speaking to a lay person here um so if you can take it take me through it in a way that i'll readily understand i think that'll be really useful it's basically um you've got a the basic four ingredients of the beer is the water hops the malt and the yeast that that gives you the beer. So in each of those four ingredients, you have to get it down to a point where you can control and make it how you want to make it. So starting with water, you can, water can be soft or hard and it changes from place to place. Um, like say the Liverpool water supply is very soft, which basically means it's, it doesn't have calcium in it. And that's really good for light beers. Whereas if you go down south to Burton, 
it'll be very hard because of the chalk that's present in the soil, which is excellent for light beers. So being able to change around the water chemistry in that way is step one, basically. And going into all those different intricacies and the other ingredients without getting too involved is a very in-depth process. You have to understand every ingredient 100% before you go around messing around with stuff because that makes not good beer. Well, it does sound, doesn't it, that the whole um, localism thing, the different areas will have... I didn't really understand this um, before you said it, but even just down to the what the local water supply is, different areas will have a specialism for a different kind of beer and will have different kind of tastes. That's exactly right. That's why Dublin is famous for Guinness, because they have such soft water. And that's oh, why I see. Burton, that's why Burton and the IPA areas are so famous for light beers, because because of the water profile. And I guess that's one thing that's really quite difficult to change without shipping in tons and tons of water, isn't it? No, it's um, it's very easy to change. It's Is just it really? It's just understanding the water chemistry. Like, as I said before, Liverpool water supply has very soft water. And when I'm making... Like, when I start off on a brew day, I'll have about a 1,000 litres of water, boiling water to start wow. off with. And I can alter the water chemistry by adding different chemicals, like Epsom salts is one of the one of the chemicals I'll add, or magnesium sulfate, or calcium carbonate. And what does that do? Would that, would that harden the water if you needed it to? Yeah, essentially that's exactly what it does. And okay, so what, if, we, if we've got soft water, which means there's no calcium, you can effectively add what's missing. Exactly, yeah. But how and do it, you do it the other way around, though, if you were in a hard water area and you needed to take that stuff out? The filtration and boiling off. It's, oh, okay. a lot, it's, it's very difficult to do it the other way around. It's always better to have soft water because then you can play around with it a little bit more. So, uh, I mean, I, I was coming into this interview thinking that thinking of you as a beer artist. Now, I still think that's true. But having heard about the process, you're really a beer technician as well, aren't you? You have to be a real scientist. I'm almost imagining you like Walter White from Breaking Bad, but you're, <laughs> you're dealing with alcohol instead. It's funny, whenever I take people down into the brewery, I get that, um, I get that analogy quite a lot. <laughs> And also because I love Breaking Bad and I wear Los Poyos Hermanos t-shirt quite a lot when you I do. Brew. I've seen that. Yeah, it doesn't help the the analogy. So what's Actually, your what's your, what's your creative process as a? If I think of you as an artist and you're you're painting with you view them as Lego um, pieces, but I'm I'm kind of thinking of them a little bit as as paints, if you know what I mean. That each of these flavors is a different color. What's yeah. your creative process? First of all, when you're when you're coming up with an idea for a beer, and secondly, when you're actually bringing that to fruition? It's um, it's a difficult process, yeah, for sure. Um, if you say it like in an artist's point of way, and it's my canvas, I'd have the idea for a beer that I want to make in my head, so like a painter would want to paint something. Like, and how, how does that happen, Tom? Is it is it just, is it like a flash of inspiration, or is it that you'll remember a beer that you had and, and you'll think, I wonder what that would be if I took that out and put this in? It can be both, yeah, it can absolutely be that. Um, so you can have a random flash of inspiration or a random flash of badness and then think of a crazy, wacky beer that you want to make. Sorry, you're going to have to forgive the sirens in the yeah, background. Yeah, I think, I think, it's a, I think um, the Secret Services are listening in and have heard the Breaking Bad analogy and they're, they're on their way to, <laughs> to each of our respective homes. That's right, yeah. 
But um, but yeah, it can be getting inspiration from another beer that you've tasted and saying, oh, wow, I'd like to make that for myself, but maybe it could do with a little bit of changing in that way. Or you can have a random flash of badness and think of think of an idea for a beer that you want to make and you don't think anybody else has made in the past and then go ahead and make it. And, and is some of that, because um, I'm thinking of what you said, you know, really near the start of this where you were talking about the heritage component. Does any of this follow research where you'll go back and you'll find a beer that maybe has been, you know, has not been made for maybe a century or something and you think, right, I'm going to bring this beer back? When I started making beer at the Baltic Fleet, um, the Baltic Fleet's had a history of brewing since 2001. And so all those old recipes are still in a filing cabinet in the brewery. And I've been looking through these old books to help me in my brewing process yeah. to think of how beer used to be made. I mean, not that long ago. I mean, it's, it's only 14 years ago. 15 years ago and has there been much changes in that in that short space of time yeah there has there really has I why found... is that what's powered those changes because 15 years is is nothing really unless you're really in computing yeah uh, it's it's the difference in ingredients so uh, going back to the technical aspects of it the little differences and say like the the malt sugars can be completely different so that will change the recipe in a in a major way it will essentially be the same beer but if i wanted to make a beer that was made 15 years ago and make it today i'd basically have to remake the beer from the ground up with completely new ingredients i'm just wondering in terms of i mean you're 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 doing this thing now you know we're in the 21st century i was looking up some statistics and these are United States figures rather than Britain. I think the Britain ones might be different, but, you know, we'll, we'll probably broadly um, follow the same trend. But in 1983, I was astonished to hear in a, a continent-sized nation like the United States of America, there were only 40 breweries, according to the stats that I read. But 20 years later, there was 1,400 breweries as these kind of micro-breweries, um, you know, kind of began to proliferate. And I'm just wondering what what's, what made that happen and what made that possible? Are there are there economic factors? Is it kind of reaction to the man? Is it is there some sort of technological change that makes you know you're brewing underneath a pub, aren't you? Really? So what has changed in the industry that ensures that it's now possible for brewers like yourself to get out there and 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 put your own beer out there when? In the past, it sounded like it was very concentrated in the hands of just a few, few, few large corporations. Yeah, it was very concentrated, especially in the U.S. It was basically owned by Einhauser Bush, which is which owned Budweiser and basically the boogeyman of brewing. Basically, you could say they basically have beer brewing not to a creative standpoint, but just purely on profit margin. Yeah where they've actually, one of the, the, the well, probably the most important aspect to brewing is the malts and getting the sugars, because if you don't have sugar, you can't get alcohol. They've gone around the, the idea of having malt in the beer, which gives the beer its flavor, essentially, and has swapped it out with rice, which is way cheaper to buy and basically doesn't have any flavor contribution whatsoever. So they have substituted a big ingredient and 
to increase profit margins. They've replaced it with something completely different. So when when people in camera and people who I know are like real ale aficionados, when they say this beer's got no taste in it, and it sounds like they're kind of being the beer equivalent of of wine tasters, they actually have a point. You're saying because they're taking out the, a huge part of the flavour just for pro, just for, just for profit margins. Another reason why camera was created is to fight back against this big consumerism. I actually respect camera a lot for that point. Yeah, it's uh, the campaign for real ale. They basically had enough of mass-produced, over watered down garbage, really, and that's kind of where the whole boom of craft beer came from, especially in the U.S. They were the leaders of it, really. So basically, they had enough of of big breweries ruining what they loved. There used to be loads of different breweries in the U.S. before they all got bought out and essentially taken over by Einhouse Bush. I, I see. So uh, that's interesting to me, actually. So what you're dis- see what I was thinking in my head, you know, from the outside looking in and with no knowledge of this at all, I was thinking that this was mirroring something that's happened in the rest of society where technological changes have ensured that the, you know, the, the two or three person startup in their garage or their bedroom can then start taking on a, a big corporation. But it actually sounds as though there was once this cottage industry that was then really monopolized by a few corporations. It completely was, absolutely. And basically, I think people have stopped going for the idea of being bought out and sold out. And that's what created the, the revolution. So have, the, have there been technological changes, though, Tom? Has there been something that makes the micro element of it possible? Or is it is it simply a reaction to, you know, we don't have to do this anymore. There's actually a, a niche that we can provide. We can be more agile. We can serve our customers better. Is it purely that kind of reaction? Or has technology made made smallness possible? It is. No, the technological standpoint of brewing has stayed the same for hundreds and thousands of years. Basically the same principle. And it it can't really get any smaller. I mean, you can do certain technical things to the beer to make it easier, but it is basically the same process. It can't get smaller. You're dealing with volumes of liquid. To make it smaller and tighter, it's, it's physically impossible. So the whole fight back was against the big corporations who were basically ruining something that the small person liked and want, wanted to enjoy more. And so I think basically the the whole surge was to make something that we respected and that we could enjoy. So this is kind of like the rebirth of the of the craftsman, the craftsperson, I should say, in, in this industry then, isn't it? Backed by the people who actually drink the product. That's right. Yeah, definitely. It kind of has a punk feel, this, Tom. I don't know whether that's a, a good analogy. But I remember I was reading in the research for this that there was that what a lot of the big corporates do is they try and sneakily um, put under the radar their own craft beers, you know, in inverted commas, and the punters sniff it out and have nothing to do with them. And so it feels like as though your your, your customers are deliberately backing the underdog, you know, and and so it feels like a, a you know political with a small p maybe, but it, it feels kind of punky. That's that. That was the whole. You basically, without knowing it, have told the whole story of Brewdog, which are now a huge success. Uh, basically, two guys 
two guys who went to university together to study microbiology and their dog um, started up their own brewery to fight back against the major major um, corporations. Um, started in uh, Edinburgh or Aberdeenshire, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but their first flagship beer was called Punk IPA. Oh, really? And that's the whole story. Basically, they're saying we're rebelling against the system and bollocks to the rest of the Budweiser's and Foster's. We're going to make something that we want to drink and that we know the people want to drink. So, so it's funny you say the punk background. Yeah. But, um, it, it fits in so well with their ideology. They're yeah. basically wanting to break the mold. And they've also been a, a great contributor to this craft beer revolution. So, so what's the um, what's what's the mix here between being an artist and because because you, you still have to make money yourselves, don't you? Any micro brewer to keep their head above water and to keep going um, still has to make money. So, what is the what is the mix between artist and business head? Yeah, that's a really good question. You've got to again, you can't kind of just go buck wild and make something crazy that you know that only you want to drink because then it's it's very it was very niche and you'll struggle to find something you'll, you'll struggle to sell it so it's that balance between knowing what will sell and still having that creative outlet and it's um it's it can be a tightrope definitely and knowing when to cut back on the creativity thinking oh no that's that's too weird <laughs> Let's, let's just make it a little bit more accessible. I guess it's um, it's like, if you want to put it in an artistry point of view, it's like um, Dali painting a, a huge abstract piece straight out of the bat when people wouldn't know him and think, God, what the hell is that? Without actually knowing what he's trying to do. So it's kind of, it's being creative, but still restraining yourself to a, an accessible point of view so do you, do you have opportunities to to test beers you know is there room for experimentation within the biz, business model where you'll go all right this this might be popular but obviously we don't know so we've got some sort of um you know like a product validation process where we can m make it as, as make, make as little of it as possible get it out there in the pub see whether people like it see if it's selling and if it's not, we'll kill it off and won't make any more, but hopefully it'll stick around. Is there that kind of product validation cycle going on? Yeah, there is, and that starts from the homebrewing side of things. Like, you can have an idea for a really amazing beer that you think will sell extremely well, and then you'll think, oh, I'll make that on homebrew and see how, that, see how well it goes, see how well it tastes, and see if it is as good as I think it's going to be. And then, I've, I've done this a few times where I've, thought of a, a really good recipe or think it's going to be a good recipe and then I've tried it myself and it's been pants and it, it works the complete polar opposite as well like I challenged myself a while ago to make the most boring beer possible which is just basically, basically <laughs> uh, three ingredients which was one malt one hop and a bog standard English style yeast and it turns out to be one of the best beers I've ever made so <laughs> It's it's really swings and roundabouts, well, and um, yeah, yeah. I mean that's interesting because I hadn't thought that because 
I hadn't thought back then to the roots of it in home brewing. If you want to, if you've got an idea, you can try that out in the smallest scale possible. I was thinking of like one loads of hundred thousand liter waters, and that's your first batch. But you, like you say, you can go much much smaller than that. And I'm guessing what you do then is taste it yourself, hand it out to friends and and other beer <coughs> aficionados, and see if it gets the thumbs up. See what feedback you get, and then exactly if it looks a good one, you'll you'll make it in the actual brew itself. The funny thing is, my homebrew kit is 25 litres, so it's it's not very much at all. And the, the kit that I brew on at the Baltic Fleet, um, the average size brew that I'll make is around about 800 litres. So it's a significant amount more, but yeah. the time it takes to make 25 litres is exactly the same as it is to make 800 litres. Now, I know you might sound a little bit confused by that, but brewers will definitely understand. No, I think I get that, because you've got the same kind of... It's the same ingredients, it's the same process. It's like a pan of soup and a whole vat of soup will probably take the same amount, as long as it's got got a a proportionate amount of heat under the pan, basically, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the idea, yeah, definitely. I mean, the so, pause was just that I was thinking that might be the case, but it's it's certainly a lot cheaper to test out on a home brew than it is to go through the whole process of you know absolutely. using tons of ingredients for something that people might taste and turn their nose up at. Yeah, that is definitely what I do. Um, but there are some breweries out there that will have a crazy idea and will go for it. And there's some breweries that are actually known for it, like Mad Hatter, an amazingly good brewery who come up with like crazy ideas for beers and then they go ahead and make it because they're that's their niche um i wouldn't want to say that they're a novelty beer market they're, they're fantastic brewers the the guy who taught me how to brew angus is the head brewer at Matata now and he has got such a good scientific head on him he is an excellent brewer and he comes up with these crazy ideas like a tzatziki sour is one of their beers. What does so, that mean to someone like me? <laughs> so the tzatziki is a Greek yogurt. Oh, okay. With cucumber. <laughs> and a sour beer as well. Basically, it's kind of a beer that will taste almost like a cider. Yeah. And it'll also have that cucumbery mint flavor to it. So imagine like a sour cucumber mint beer. Yeah, that's off the wall, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty off the wall. <laughs> Do a, a salted caramel beer that's 14%. Wow. So, yeah, all these crazy, crazy ideas. And yet they still make an excellent 3.5 bitter. They, they know everything. So what, what are the costs involved then? I mean, I'm guessing that people pay... I, I mean, I might be wrong here, but do people pay a little bit more for craft beer because, you know, it's a, it's a proper product rather than something industrial industrialized is the is the price per pint a little bit more it is yeah it's definitely it's getting a bit of a, a notoriety about that point where people will go into a craft beer pub and kind of have a little grumble about the pint costing a little bit more but people have to appreciate that there's a lot more craft is the perfect word to fit into it there's Absolutely. a lot more craft going into it and Essentially, if you were to meet a brewer of a big-scale beer like Carling or Foster's, I would like to say that, not insulting these people, but I'd like to say that they wouldn't really understand the scientific background into what goes into making that product. 
Whereas if you were to make ask the maker of this crazy rhubarb beer that you're getting, you know, in one bar in Liverpool, how that beer is made, they'll be able to tell you absolutely everything. Yeah. And that's the, that's the main difference there, I think, is it's about the knowledge, it's about the passion, and it's about the craft. Yeah, and I think it sounds, you know, I, I mean, I was expecting there to be, to, that people would be prepared to pay that little bit more for what's obviously a, sounds like a superior product. What what kind yeah. of um, what kind of costs are involved with a, a, a batch? So you're coming up with a new beer and you've tested it on your home brew, and then how many sales would that take to make it viable? Because... I mean, this links into another question I've got, actually. I don't know whether to ask them both together, but I'm aware that, you know, we're, we're in a landscape of pub closures. So the microbrewery um, scene is, is kind of growing at the same time as the distributive outlets for that are closing down. So I think that is a separate question, but could you answer that one for me first? And I'll come back to the to the costs and viability thing. How, how, how does these two sides of it square up? Um, it's a difficult question. Yeah, there have been a lot of pub closures recently. Um, in my own personal opinion, I think, well, just, just from Liverpool's point of view or or the UK's point of view, actually, there's, there's so many pubs. There's just so many pubs. I mean, on my road alone, London Road, I can count oh, eight different pubs on one road. And I know that that's probably a stereotypically English thing. And it is, but living in New Zealand for six and a half years, you have to actually go out and find a pub. Well, and it's to me, it's not necessarily a bad thing that that pubs are closing because it's kind of Darwinian in a way. These, uh, I wouldn't like to say that bad pubs are closing because that's not always the case. Like some really excellent pubs have closed, like Liverpool One Bridewell closed closed recently. That's and that, right. That was a fantastic pub. Historic. It was an old jail in Liverpool yeah, one. Yeah. And great staff, great beer. And they closed down and it was really unfortunate. But I do think that closure of pubs is I think the pub market has always been oversaturated. And I'd like to say that I think the British populace are just kind of starting to figure that out. Where a pub has to be exceptional to stay open. And do you think that's what's happening though? Do you think in the do you think when if we look at all the pubs that were there say ten years ago, is it the ones who are offering this superior product who are surviving? Because I'm thinking of chains like Weatherspoons, for instance, which which you know it's a chain pub after all, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know because as I say, I'm 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 pretty much almost teetotal. I don't know what their range of beers are, but they seem to be. Um, Booking the trend of pub closures, Weatherspoon seem very successful. So, is it actually a case that that the quality pubs that offer a big range of traditional beers are the ones that are surviving? A good friend of mine, uh, a chef of mine, always used to say that a, su- a successful uh, a successful business is based on um, consistency. So, you can be consistently bad and still be successful, like McDonald's. You can go to McDonald's, and you know it will always be crap. But it's one, <laughs> of the, it's, it's one of the biggest businesses in the world. It's the same with Weatherspoons. I worked for Weatherspoons for about two years, when I was 17, 18. And Weatherspoons were originally a point of difference. So 
no music. Um, standard beers like Foster's, and they had their real ales and cheap food. So it was kind of like an entry point to a pub market was Weatherspoons. They do good beers, it's really cheap, and they can manage that by buying lots of it. By buying so much beer, it's uh, incredible. That's how they make their beer prices so cheap. But uh, again, it's a bit of an oversaturated market, definitely. Um, sorry, what was the other question you asked? Well, the, the, yeah, I was going back to the actual um, artistry versus business. I was I was interested in how many sales. So you do a new Baltic Fleet beer, and I don't know how much that costs. Maybe you'll tell me to actually do your first test batch. How many how many pints do you have to sell? Where you go right? This is a goer. This beer will actually make us money. And this is going to stay with us and we'll do another batch and keep on going. The thing is with beer, um, if you make it properly, its shelf life is quite, well, it's, it's incredibly long. I didn't realise that actually. So it's a little bit like wine really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If it's in an airtight container, which it definitely should be, then it's, I wouldn't say it's inexhaustible, but the shelf life of it is, is long. So you can make a beer and essentially don't really have to worry about it. As long as you've got rid of it after a year, then it's fine. But I'd say that it, it all depends on the beer. Saying, like, it's a goer is, um... Like, I'm, my first recipe on the Baltic Fleet Kit was a completely out-of-the-ballpark out kind of a wacky idea, because, um... It was a 6.2 beer made with a Belgian yeast, Saison, which is a bit of a weird, wacky yeast. Um, and then it looks and tastes more like a stout, but then I added Earl Grey to it. So it's like a chocolatey Earl Grey banana beer, 6.2. So a lot of people won't drink a beer over 5%. So it's kind of everything that's undesirable about a beer really <laughs> it's high percentage it's got a funny sounding yeast to go with it that not a lot of people know about and it's got earl grey which can be a bit of a polarizing thing as well but i made 22 casks of it and within the first four or five weeks half of them had gone how many pints in a cask um, it's a nine-gallon cask, and there's eight pints to one gallon, so it's eight okay, times nine. So seventy-two pints, exactly. Okay, so so you sold there. You've you've sold nearly eight, well, over eight hundred, I think, eight hundred pints from yeah, this right, um, yeah. beer that was made deliberately so nobody would buy it. No, it wasn't <laughs> made so. That, <laughs> I didn't make it so that nobody would buy it. I kind of I made it because. Um, I knew it was something that I would like, and mm. I wanted to really stretch my wings and try something experimental on an industrial setting brewery in the Baltic Fleet. Like, I'd done wacky style beers myself at home, and I'd done normal beers at home as well, but I wanted to see what the difference was in making a bog standard beer on a, in an industrial setting as to an out-of-the-box one. How does it feel when you've actually created the beer? I'm thinking maybe going back to your very first time. So you've never made a, a, an industrial beer, as you call it, you know, using not your home brew. What what does it what did it feel like the very first time that you did that and you had the beer in your hand and you took a sip? I was trading with Angus for a long time um, before he moved to Matata, 
the first time I brewed solo, I was hacking myself, absolutely hacking <laughs> myself, because I was like, oh crap, he's gone now, I can't call on him in case anything goes wrong. So it was very much a matter of getting my head down, concentrating, remembering what he'd taught me. And then at the end of the day, it was a perfect brew day. Like so many different things can go wrong in the brew day. Every brewer knows that you never have a perfect one. But this was a perfect brew day. My first solo brew was perfect. And having that end product in my beer is just extremely satisfying really gratifying to know that all the hard work and the passion that you've put into making and growing your knowledge to that point and you've got that quantifiable product in your hand and you're tasting it actually tasting it yeah it's it's great it's fantastic and and, and going a step beyond that what's it like when someone actually orders it and then i mean do you, do you know do you know like sometimes you'll cook someone a meal and then and then you just kind of stare at them while they're eating it do you, do you have that kind of thing when someone buys your beer? Especially when I made Malt Store Mash, which was the name of the 6.2 beer I was talking about <laughs> earlier. I wasn't, um, I'm always definitely conscious about the other beers that I make, but mainly they're other people's recipes. So I would have thought that they would be watching over them, but still I want to make sure that I'm making a good beer. But definitely for that beer, which was my baby, essentially, I was watching everybody who ordered that beer to see what their reaction was. And, and what was like, their reaction like? Or what was that? What happened when they when they were drinking it? It's different. It's different for some people. Some people didn't like the beer. Um, most does, that, does that annoy you when someone tastes it and go, "Ugh," and you no, think, "Oh, I, I made that. Never mind her." No, of course not. No, it's <laughs> it's it's different. Like I personally cannot stand baked beans. They're the most disgusting thing in the world to me. Well, I, I love baked beans. You see, Tom. So any exactly. baked beans that come your way, you send them over here. Okay, I will do. <laughs> I will do. But, yeah, that's exactly the point, is that you love them. I can't stand them. It's, yeah. it's, it's a personal it's thing. Personal I'm not going to take, I'm not gonna take um, a defensive stance on somebody not liking something that I've made, because I know that even beer isn't for everybody. And trying that particular out-of-the-box beer most definitely isn't for everybody. But I'd say about 85% of the time, 90% of the time, people were giving me great feedback saying, if this is your first recipe, industrial size setting, then job well done. Excellent. And that must have been very, very satisfying. Yeah, definitely it was, yeah. So my final question, Tom, is you're, you're in a pub and you see someone go to the bar and they order um, an industrial, um, by, by industrial I mean, you know, not a craft beer. They, they, they order one of these big corporate um, rubbishy beers as you see them. And you've got the opportunity to to intercept the order and say, oh, listen, friend, I've got a whole new world to, to open you up into if, if, if you just allow me. And, and the guy's open-minded, so he says, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So you're taking this person from, from the world of the Budweiser's and so on, and you're able to take them on this little adventure where they experience what real beer is like, what, what's your, what would your starting point be in terms of you, you, you're spending two or three hours just sipping beer with this person? What do you put in front of them? I'd give them a good range of different styles of beer. So if they've only ever drank Fosters or something like that, or something like, like a mass-produced lager, and that's what they like, 
then I'd actually give them a proper lager, like a proper German cold fermented lager, like crisp, really nice, and it will taste completely different. And I will say that is what lager is meant to taste like, <laughs> not not like the other stuff that you've been drinking. So you'll start and, them where they where they are at that moment and move them on a few steps. Exactly, that's exactly what I'd do, and I'd probably. I'd go through the whole range of different beers if they wanted to actually know about beers. Then I'd probably do like a, I think the pretentious chefy term is a degustation. So I'd probably go through one of those where I'd go through the area that they're most comfortable with. Like if they have only drank Guinness, then I'd give them an Irish dry style stout to start off with. See what they think of that. Then maybe move them onto a porter and then go to less dark beers and move through the whole spectrum. So eventually landing on a wheat beer, which is completely the polar opposite of a, of a stout. Basically anything to broaden horizons. And what would you recommend for me? Because I'm, I'm not, I say I'm teetotal. I'm, I'm actually not teetotal, but I just drink, I just drink alcohol very, very rarely. You know, it's probably about three times a year and even then a very small amount in any one dose so if you had someone like me and you wanted to, to get me on this road, what, what would you offer someone who was relatively teetotal? Um, uh, to be honest, I don't know whether I would. Uh, it's, it's, um, I'd respect that decision of wanting to be teetotal, but if they wanted to, to try something crazy different that they may not have had before, I'd ask what they've enjoyed in the past, basically trying to link it back to that something that they're more comfortable with. So it'd be the same process, basically. So if I, if I say three times a year, I'll have two bottles of lager, you'll, you'd get me a proper lager. Yeah. Well, recommend exactly me a proper perfect. lager because sometimes I have a little urge to have a drink. And as I say, it's not often, but what's, what's the lager I should get next time that urge comes over me? Uh, it depends, really. So what kind of lagers have you, have you drank in the past that you've enjoyed? Oh, well, for me, Tom, I, I don't have this connoisseur's thing. I, I, I get something that's cheap. So, um, actually, I've liked, I've liked San Miguel in the past. I like them little bottles, that little stubby bottles that you get from Aldi. But I think that's because they're cheap. So, I, I, I could my, my palate could really do with an awakening. Right, I see. So, <laughs> you've had, like, um, little stubby bottles of, like, say... Uh, so not special brew or anything like no, that. No, I think it was a French. I can't even remember its name, but a little French one. And I bought them because they were small, and I know I only drink small quantities. Yeah, I mean, I can name. I can definitely give you some names of really good lagers, but um, they are difficult to find. Like, um, I'm trying to think, Rogue Rogue Brewery in the US do a really good one called the Dirtoir Black Lager. Um, that's a different style of lager. It's dark, um, but it still has that crisp taste to it. Um, well, I've got a friend who's into this, you see. I'm going to a party in August, and uh, a friend of mine will have, I'm pretty certain, will have some of these lagers in there. So when I'm there, I can give them a try based on your advice. Yeah, yeah, nice. Go for it. Don't be shy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Live a try little. Some. Live a little, yeah. Have little sippers. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't hurt to try some. Just before we go, do you still do you still do Lego? I do, <laughs> I do actually. It's one of my guilty pleasures, and especially Minecraft as well. 
It's yes. like Lego, but on the Xbox. Yes, uh, a friend of mine, his um, his son has uh, has that, and it is. It's exactly the same thing, isn't it? But digital. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's been lovely talking to you, Tom. Um, like I say, I wasn't sure what to expect, me being not really in the beer world, but I have to say it's been absolutely fascinating. So thanks for, for giving me a peek inside there. And, you know, I'm, I'm a musician and a songwriter, and I, I can see that there's a real artistry and craft and a real parallel in terms of our two worlds when you go to, to make a beer, um, except that when you make a beer, there's a lot more to it than just the art. So I have a... A, a real respect for the for the work that you do, and and also for that kind of um, anti corporate sort of you know drive that's underneath all that that gives people a good product and brings back that craftsmanship. It's actually a really good parallel that you raise there. It's it's like you as a musician of it's a mixture of technical technical know how of having knowing to how play the guitar or play the piano or whatever, yeah, and also have that artistry of being able to be creative with that technical know-how. That's true, it's, actually, yeah. It's a, it's a really good link. And I suppose increasingly yeah. with recording as well, it's knowing how to move your way around studio software and... Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been great to talk to you, Tom. I'm really I'm really thankful that you've spent an hour with me um, and hopefully people who listen to this will, will also get that sense of just what it takes to make beer. As you say, I don't think people really do understand that. And hopefully they'll uh, they'll start to live a little as well and maybe break outside the, the ordinary beer that they've been drinking and, and get themselves down to the Baltic fleet and drink some of yours. Yeah, great. That would be awesome. And if people do want to know more about beer, um, I've got a Twitter, which is at MorePoreKiwi, which is M-O-R-P-O-R-K-I-W-I. Excellent. Uh, so I'll, if, I'll if put you that in know... the show notes so there'll be a link directly to you. So if anyone wants to talk to you about beer and, and you know what they can get from you at the Baltic Fleet or elsewhere, then then or just chat about the process. Maybe there'll be some beer makers who, who want to talk to you, then they'll be able to link directly to you on your Twitter from the show notes. So that'll be cool. Yeah, if people want to know more about the beer, I'm definitely happy to speak to them. Or even if you just want to chat about Lego... <laughs> contact, me on tw- contact me on Twitter and I'd be very interested to talk to you well good luck with that and thanks again and have a great day Tom you too Aaron. I'll see you later so that was Tom Anderson cocktail expert beer creator and Lego enthusiast and just an all round nice person to boot now you can try some of the ales that Tom has himself invented and created by visiting the Baltic Fleet pub in Liverpool where Tom's creations are on sale. Now the Alan Parry podcast is currently available on iTunes so if you like the show please give it a five-star review on iTunes that really helps to spread the word and please tell your friends about the show too. You can also visit alanparry.com that's spelled A-L-U-N where you'll find all the past episodes and all of my many blog posts as well but most of all thank you for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.